Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Smoke and the sound of air raid sirens fill the air in Ukraine as it enters its fourth week of war. Rockets and missiles continue to batter the country. President Volodymyr Zelensky accused Russia of deliberately bombing a theater sheltering civilians in the besieged city of Mariupol. But this conflict isn't being waged with artillery alone, nor is it confined to the cities and towns of Ukraine. At home in Russia, President Vladimir Putin is fighting a battle for control. He's shuttered social media and muzzled the independent press. I think, friends, we should finish this at this time. The end of the show and a small pause that the television channel is doing. But it's time. Dissent, however, can take some striking forms, and viewers of Russia's main state TV channel got more than the usual diet of Kremlin propaganda this week. Journalist Marina Ovsianikova took her stand, holding up a sign, telling viewers to stop believing the Kremlin's lies. It was my own anti-war decision. Yeah, it, I made this decision by myself because I don't like uh, Russia start this uh, invasion and uh, it uh, was really terrible. As the war Putin assumed he would have won by now drags on, it also marks a pivotal moment in his country's history. This is The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy and this week we're asking, what does war in Ukraine mean for Russia? My guest is Andrei Kozarev, who served as Russia's foreign minister from 1990 to 1996, working under Boris Yeltsin. As the Soviet Union broke up, Kozirev engineered the new Russian Federation's foreign policy. And as the Cold War thawed, he called for better relations with the West. We have a better quality of relations, that is mature relationship. We are addressing this in a very deep and business-like and I should say constructive manner. So how does Russia's former foreign policy boss see his country's future? At home and abroad. Andrei Kozirev, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you. Happy to be here. Now, you've lived outside Russia for a number of years by now, but you're following Russian media, you're following what's going on. And like so many of us, you'll have seen that standout figure, Marina Ovsianikova, the TV journalist who held up the anti-war sign during a news bulletin. That was a remarkable moment that went round the world. Do you think that the actions of people like her to take a stand against the war in Ukraine are having 
an impact in Russia? Well, definitely. Marina Ovsanikova, of course, is a hero. I believe that it might have an impact like a girl once cried, the emperor has no clothes. And everybody all of a sudden opened their eyes and recognized that they lived in the world of lies. Something of that, hopefully, is happening right now in Russia. The journalists and many other people start to look inside themselves into their souls and find that it's high time to desert the propaganda. Some of them risk a lot, like Marina, she is still risking a prison term. But that's how the heroes behave. Just following up on your, your point that you think something of that critical view is getting through to to a lot of Russian people. I do worry about a danger in the West that we see pictures of very brave protesters and think that this perhaps speaks for more of Russia than it does. Surely from Mr. Putin's point of view, he still has the majority of public opinion on his side. And there is a risk in perhaps being too optimistic that much more public opinion will shift in the direction that Marina Ovsianikova was advocating for. Well, the only risk is a risk of not doing enough to, to provide for Ukrainians to stand against the aggression and in hesitation of the European countries in going on with sanctions and with military support. I mean, that game of hot potato, which we saw just recently with those Soviet-made links in Poland, that's discouraging. And it encourages Putin to think that he can still win. And all this talk about giving him a face-saving or giving him some space. I mean, that's all for what I call a useful idiot, because he is a big boy, and he knows his ways. And you first bloody his nose, and then he will find his way out. So the only risk is the risk of not taking the risk. You were foreign minister, the first foreign minister after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. That was a time when the Iron Curtain had just fallen. I was actually in Moscow at that that time. And it was an uncertain time, but it felt like the end of the, the old period of the Cold War. Do you see the risk of a new Iron Curtain now descending in Europe? It does, at least in Russia, definitely. It's now the choice of the Europe outside of Russia whether they help Ukraine immediately, not piecemeal approach, because the Kremlin, they do not understand all these niceties and all this finesse. They understand brutal force. The response should be very powerful from the very beginning and unambiguous. We'll come back perhaps to what other countries should do and not do, and America 
obviously where you're talking to us from foremost in that, but with other allies. But I'd like to get a sense of what you think Vladimir Putin's own thought processes are for igniting the war with Ukraine. What does he want? He made it very clear. He even in written form handled his demands to NATO. It's all there in that paper. He does not hide. It's all at the open. He wants the NATO and the Western zone of freedom to roll back. He fears the most if Ukraine becomes a westernized, so to say, a free economy and as it is democracy and goes on on democratic prosperity with the help of the European Union and America, then he will lose tremendously because Russian people will look over the border and Ukrainians are our brothers and the Russians will say, how come our brothers are free and prosperous and we are still under the Iron Curtain? So that's his first objective, to subdue Ukraine and stop it from going uh, to freedom. But he won't stop here. If he is not stopped, he will go on on his design, which he <laughs> already made public. There is nothing to guess. So it's time that European leaders, some of those who are hesitant, who argue for piecemeal, who argue for giving him a negotiating room or whatever, it's time for them to put on double strong glasses and read the paper. Another prominent face of Russia at the moment is Sergei Lavrov, who was your deputy when you were in office. He's now Russia's foreign minister. He's been known on the circuit of foreign ministers, of course, for many years. What did you see in him when you worked together? And is the Sergei Lavrov that we see now basically fronting for the war in Ukraine in a very tough line with the international institutions? Is this the Lavrov that you met and indeed rather promoted? He was and still is a, a very good diplomat and he was my friend and he shared my views Otherwise, I would not promote him to be my deputy. And we worked together for years. But it's very painful to see that by now, he went so much down that he is nobody, actually. He's just performing a dance for an orchestra or a choreographer who is there in Kremlin. It's disgrace. It's very painful for me because he was my friend. What do you think is motivating him? There have been several times, I suppose, when those close to Putin, whether it was in the first incursion into Crimea, whether it was in Georgia, whether it was in many other sort of periphery conflicts that, that Putin has stoked, why do you think your old, as you say, friend and someone you had some commonality of vision with about Russia and the world, what leads him to stay? I don't know. Probably greed. Probably he thinks that he's a prominent figure. By the way, I think it's a mistake that Western diplomacy and Western countries boost that feeling of importance and of grandeur, so to say, in Putin, this parade 
of Western leaders' telephone calls. That's what he wants. That's exactly one of the reasons he uses brutal force to be king of the world. So they are just feeding that feeling. I was a diplomat for many years during the Cold War, and then when I was foreign minister, and I know one thing in diplomacy. Diplomacy becomes empty words if it is not backed by resolve. It could be economic resolve, it would be military resolve, it could be goodwill resolve. I tried to implement this force, the force of goodwill and the force of conviction that Russia could be a democratic country, a real partner and even ally of the West, of the United States and of Europe. But if it is not backed by those forces, then those words become empty. And this talk with Putin, stop lecturing him. What is his interest? They lecture him what are interests of Russia. But he is not representing interest of Russia for a long time already. He is representing interest of his regime, of him to stay in power, which is contrary to Russian interest. So when they preach to him that it's in Russian interest to be a good country, you know, and to be partner of the West, of course it is in Russian interest. But he does not care. He wants to dominate. Well, that brings me to the present peace talks which have taken place between Russia and Ukraine. And you seem to doubt really that not only the West, but all countries who are united in this coalition against the war can really influence much that Vladimir Putin is thinking. How seriously do you take this idea of peace talks at all as a seasoned negotiator yourself? I mean, do you think that they're aimed at peace or are they really a staging post, a kind of holding pattern? Well, again, negotiations are good as long as they are backed by force. So as much as uh, Ukraine would be able to stand militarily, because now it's cannons talking, so as much as they would be able to stay militarily, they would be able to negotiate. If Putin smells blood, so to say, on the Western side, that Western countries are fearful of his blackmail, like nuclear blackmail, then there is no point in negotiations. Yes, there is room for negotiations, both Ukrainian-Russian and European Union-Russian, but only if he learns the lesson on the battleground in Ukraine. Well, that is actually exactly what I wanted to to ask you next, which was how much of a defeat in Ukraine would it take, as you see it, to kind of force Vladimir Putin into the territory where peace talks would not really just be a Potemkin facade to the war continuing, resuming, stopping, starting. It sounds like 
you're almost suggesting that he needs a total defeat. But a lot of diplomats disagree with that and think there has to be that golden bridge over which an aggressor can retreat in order to bring it to a conclusion, unless you're lucky enough that he falls or there's a successful coup. Well, <laughs> as I said, some people are busy thinking for him, which is ridiculous. He knows how to do this. He's a big boy, as I said. He does not need to be led by hand out of this. He went into this war and he will find his way out, but only if he feels, smells defeat. The Economist wrote last week that as it sinks in that he can't win in Ukraine, and we know that Russia has suffered significant losses in in its troops and also in military equipment, worse than expected. It can keep going, but the, the price obviously rises in every way for Moscow too. But if it can't win and Putin resorts to more repression at home as looks like it is on the the cards. The free press has basically been all but stamped out, social media blocked, etc. Is it this domestic deterioration that you think will in the end be the biggest pressure point on the Kremlin and on Putin's power? It's all together. It was proven in the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was defeated in Afghanistan and had to withdraw, and it was contribution to internal discontent. So both things are all hand in hand, and we know that he cannot win in Ukraine. But he will start seriously negotiating and seriously thinking of the way out when he understands that he cannot win. And the same in inside, when he believes that there is considerable resistance of the Russian people, which will come sooner or later. There is also the the possibility, if you were to look at the trends of recent Russian political history, you might say that advisers pushing out a leader, staging some form of a palace coup, does seem to be the method with the most proven track record, if we were to, to look at it in that way. Do you think that's at all possible. We do know, you're talking about uh, your old deputy, uh, Mr. Lavrov, there is no doubt at all that he is hearing other voices. We know that a lot of their own children don't support the war and have turned on Vladimir Putin. Do you think it is possible that that is the route to his end? A cool attempt? Yes, it's very much in Russian tradition. The Tsar Nicholas II was forced by his generals to sign the resignation. So nothing new. All that is possible. All that is possible, of course. Let's look uh, to NATO and to relations of Russia with the the outside world. Ukraine has found itself, in in effect, trapped between NATO and its Western support and, and Russia to its east. And Putin says that it is this expansion and this sort of grouping NATO and the EU, the expansion of that that's effectively compelled him to attack Ukraine. That, that's the logic, broadly speaking. Volodymyr Zelensky says Ukraine won't seek to join NATO. So he seems to be trying to give some form of reassurance that could be the basis of a negotiation. Is this the right way to proceed? I would refrain from advising Zelensky. They are in a very tough situation. He proved to be outstanding wartime leader. 
I believe that they will decide for themselves and I will leave this decision to them. What is important, though, for all of us is to understand the simple thing, that he is not pressed from two sides. He is under attack from one side, from Kremlin, and the Western side is to help him to stand against this attack. It's a process of more and more countries in Europe choosing democracy and choosing to join NATO. And Ukraine is not the last in this line. And the West should welcome that. I wonder if the Andrei Kozirev as foreign minister, who was watching as, as NATO welcomed former Soviet states into the alliance from the 1990s onwards, I wonder whether you would have been so sure about this position as as you sound now, if you don't mind me making that challenge to you. There was an open-armed approach by NATO. It didn't, in the end, deliver NATO membership. And in a sense, if Ukraine had NATO membership, you could argue that it had worked. But maybe Ukraine was left with neither the blessings and the protection of NATO membership, but a more angry Russia I think you're going to tell me that I'm wrong about that. I just wanted to uh, test you a bit on that one. If they don't support Ukraine full-heartedly now, and I am worried also of EU. European Union seems to be still emerged in bureaucratic approach to the absolutely unbureaucratic times. Bureaucracy is very good, and all those uh, requirements for uh, Ukraine to join European Union or NATO, they are absolutely correct. And Ukraine will have to follow on that. But in peaceful time, in the war time, it is very important to signal that, yes, NATO and European Union are ready to welcome Ukraine because it is inspiring for Ukrainian people in time of deep, deep trouble. That's what should be done. And the bureaucracy in that time is not good for the moment. It comes later. And I am very, very disappointed with the EU response to their application. Zelensky understands the rules of political game. And that's why he signed this application to European Union, not because he expects Ukraine being in war to become a full-scale European Union participant, but because he, he wants to give his people the future. Yeah, I suppose the, the EU would argue it's not being as bureaucratic, as slow-moving as it often is. Uh, I'd share your frustration on, on that front. But it has put in place a massive sanctions package. We've seen a huge change in, in Germany on uh, Nord Stream 2 and other instruments of policy and really a swinging behind Russia. Are you being a little harsh on the European Union? I don't often find myself saying that on this show, but anyway... You sounds like you, you feel it should go further. Yes, I understand that Europe and NATO and America are doing a lot and they are on the right side of history, definitely. What I try to communicate is that there is much to be done. 
I hear you. What about this ultimate threat, which is nuclear weapons and the calculation of, of any likelihood of, of the, such a terrible prospect of them being used uh, after Russian nuclear forces were put on high alert, of course. Do you see scenarios in which Putin would be prepared to unleash nuclear weapons in this conflict? No, it's just a legway, uh, nothing more, because those forces which he allegedly ordered to high alert and Pentagon and other sources openly say that they don't see anything like that. So it's empty threat, but he plays this game and uh, those strategic weapons uh, which he ordered on alert, that's suicidal weapons because if he sends a missile to Europe, uh, to NATO or to the United States, he gets two back and there is no survival for anyone. How do you think the Putin era ends? In disaster. It's already a disaster, but he just does not realize that. And a large part of Russian people still don't realize that because those sanctions, however strong they are, they don't hit immediately. Last thought, you said about seven years ago now, which obviously feels like about a century, given all the events around us, that it was inevitable that Russia would come back to democracy. You were in power in the first sort of faltering steps of democracy in, in Russia. It was an imperfect democracy, but it was more recognisably like a democracy than what we see today. Why did you have such faith that Russia would come back to democracy and vice versa? And do you still feel like that? If you read my book, The Firebird, that explains everything. And I explain how difficult it is for Russia to reach democracy. That's why it's called The Firebird. The Firebird and Russia fairy tales is a creature which is very difficult to teach. Yes, I still believe that Russia sooner or later will be a normal democratic country. Andrei Kozarev, thank you very much for joining us. Quite a lot of us would be definitely opening up a best bottle of real Russian Champanskoya on that day. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. And we'd love to know what you think. Do you agree with Mr Kozarev that democracy in Russia is inevitable and what will it take to get there? Write to us, podcasts at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Pods. My guest spoke about his desire for the European Union and NATO to take a stronger stance in the conflict. But there's another coalition that's stepping up to the plate. The Joint Expeditionary Force is an alliance of 10 northern European countries seeking to deter further Russian aggression. That group is led by Great Britain. And this week, The Economist spoke to Prime Minister Boris Johnson about how the group can work where NATO can't. It's a really valuable insight into the pressures on Europe's security. So to read that and enjoy full access to all of our journalism, print and online, do subscribe at economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer is Alicia Burrell and the executive producers are Hannah Mourinho and Sandra Schmueli. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist. The Economist. 